going back a few weeks to the last message from Ephesians before our studies in the Psalms over the last two weeks, we will recall from Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1 that we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we have received. This means that our manner of walking or living ought to be consistent with the grand calling to Christ and His benefits which we have received. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 2 to 6, which we're particularly focusing in on this morning, Paul begins teaching about what it would look like in the church for Christians to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called. In this day and age, we're seeing the results of a downgrade in the church at large here in Barbados. Elsewhere too, in the, in the rest of the world, but the rest of the world is not so much our business. We are seeing the results of a downgrade in the church at large here in Barbados. We are certainly not living up to the perfect standards of the New Testament writings. But neither are we living up even to the imperfect but still admirable standards of our forefathers in the wider church over the last several hundred years. Not only John Calvin, but even also John Wesley would be rolling in their graves over the state of the church at large here in Barbados. Despite an inheritance from the giants of the past, the church here has not advanced to a zenith of maturity, but has actually instead become less than what our forefathers were. This is what I mean by a downgrade. As a result of this downgrade, many Christians here in Barbados are untaught and or unholy in various ways and in varying degrees. Theological error and sin is running rampant among professing Christians here in this land. There is uh, a downgrade that has happened, and I would argue in some uh, circles is still happening. Uh, many Christians, and even in some cases whole churches, are very weak on the truth and are compromising the rigorous demands of holiness. And many Christians, including many pastors, are unwilling to call it out. Why? Well, there are multiple reasons. But at least one reason why Christians are unwilling to call error, error, and to call sin, sin, is a desire for the unity of the church at large. You'll often hear people say when you begin talking about error, or when you begin talking about sin, that you're being divisive. Or, or when asked why someone won't call error, error, or sin, sin, they'll begin talking about unity and how they're trying to preserve unity. Well, this desire for unity is, in principle, a good desire. We all ought to sincerely strive for the unity of the church. But we need to think biblically about that endeavor. The passage before us this morning, Ephesians 4, 
particularly verses 2 to 6, addresses the issue of the peace and unity of the church. So in an effort to think biblically about unity, let's turn our hearts and minds humbly now to God's Word. We're going to see three things from this passage. First, that there is unity in the church, which God's Spirit Himself creates. The second thing is our duty is to maintain that unity. The third thing is the way in which we are to endeavor to maintain unity is to relate to other Christians in a humble, gentle, loving, and patient or forbearing manner. So let's begin. There is unity in the church which God Himself creates. We just read this section of Ephesians 4, but look at your Bibles again. Paul drives home in these verses the truth that there is objective unity in the church. In verses 2 to 6, Paul represents to the Ephesians the triune work of God and salvation in the reverse order of it, beginning with their conversion and ending with the Father's sovereign plan. <coughs> In verse 4, he reminds the Ephesians that there is one body and one spirit. The one body is the multi-ethnic Jew and Gentile group created by the gospel. As people from all over the world, different races, different classes, different languages, etc., etc., as different people come to trust in Christ Jesus for salvation, they are all added to the same body or the same group of people. In the New Covenant, there is one people of God, one body. And this one body has been formed by the work of God's one Spirit. As men and women and boys and girls are drawn to faith in Christ Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, they are all added to that one body. It is the Holy Spirit who draws each and every one of the people who have been added to that body to faith in the first place. So, as Ephesians 4 and verse 4 says, there is one body and one Spirit. This leads very naturally to Paul's next statement. He says that each and every Christian has been called to one hope. There is one hope that belongs to your call. And so if each and every person has been called by the Holy Spirit with the same call, they also therefore have the same hope. Every person who places faith in Christ Jesus has the same hope. That they will live with God forever. Free from the penalty of sin. Free from the power of sin. Free even from the presence of sin in the new heavens and in the new earth, together with all their brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. This is the hope of every Christian. This is what we are all waiting for, all of us. One body comprised of all these different people who have all been called by the one Spirit to the one hope. Peter. An apostle in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1 says that all Christians, quote, have obtained a faith of equal standing 
with His. An apostle said that. In simple terms, Peter is teaching us that the lowliest Christian has the same object of faith as the apostle himself did. And therefore, the same standing before God. And therefore, the same hope. There is one hope for all Christians, from the simplest, lowliest believer to the apostles themselves. One body, one spirit, one hope. And this is because there is one Lord. He goes on to say in verse 5, One Lord, Christ Jesus, who is the object of each and every Christian's faith. In this way, there is one faith, one Lord and one faith in Him, one faith in that Lord. As many before me have pointed out, faith may differ in degrees from one Christian to another, but the weakest and the strongest faith alike both take hold of the same Christ who at Calvary shed His blood for those who have strong faith and those who have weak faith. Christ's blood was shed alike, again, for the whole range, the whole gamut of Christians, from the simplest and lowliest saint to the apostles. There is one body, one spirit, one hope, because there is one Lord and one faith in that same Lord. And so Christians have the same standing and the same hope. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith. Thus Paul can say that there is also one baptism. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 5. Regardless of whether a Christian has been outwardly water baptized into an Anglican church or a Baptist church or a Presbyterian church, regardless of the mode of water baptism, each true Christian... Each person who has been called by the Spirit into that one body. Each person who has been called by the Spirit to faith in that one Lord. And thus has that same one hope as all other Christians. Regardless of the mode of water baptism or the denomination to which someone belongs. Each true Christian has been baptized by the Spirit into Christ Jesus. One baptism. One baptism that unites us all. This is the spiritual meaning of baptism. And all this is according to the Father's plan. Who works all things according to the counsel of His will. If we remember back in chapter 1 and verse 11. There is one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. Paul says in verse 6. Which means that there is no sphere of existence over which the Father does not rule, through which He is not active, and in which He is not present. All of this, this spirit uh, calling a variety of people into this one body by bringing them all to faith in this one Lord, thus granting them this same hope and uniting them to that 
same Christ, immersing them into that same Christ through one baptism. All of this is according to the Father's sovereign plan. So one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. There is, objectively, there is a unity and peace in the church that the Spirit creates. That's why he says maintain, in verse 3, maintain the unity of the Spirit. Maintain the unity that the Spirit creates in the bond of peace. The peace that the Holy Spirit has wrought. There is a unity and peace in the church that the Spirit creates. Our duty is to maintain the unity in the church that the Spirit creates. Our duty is to maintain the unity in the church that the Spirit creates. That's the thrust of verse 3. We should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Here's where many Christians go awry. Many Christians think that maintaining unity in the church means never rocking the boat. Never contradicting or correcting a brother. Never expressing disagreement. Never calling error, error, or sin, sin. Lest you disrupt the unity of the church. But it needs to be noted that there is a potential unity in the created order, the world, everything that exists outside of God. There is a potential unity (coughs) that God's Spirit does not create. It's possible for people to unite together in a way that God's Spirit uh, has not mandated, in a way without the help, without the working of God's Spirit binding them together in that unity. Let me explain that. In this world, there is a potential for people to unite together in the commission of sin. Proverbs 1, verses 11 to 14, is an excellent example of that. There is a unity in sin described in Proverbs 1, verses 11 to 14. Come with us. Let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole, like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. That's a unity in sin. That's not a unity that God's Spirit creates. That's a unity in sin. And that unity is possible not only in the ancient Hebrew world in which Proverbs 1 was written, but that unity in sin is possible even in our modern world, even right here in Barbados. And sadly, not only outside the church, but inside the church, it is possible for Christians to unite together in sin. And that kind of unity is not a kind of unity that the Spirit is bringing about. Right? Consider, you only have to consider. And I think, sadly, and this demonstrates the point, I think all of us 
can think of a specific financial scandal or sexual scandal that has happened inside a church where it becomes clear in due time that people knew about it and didn't do anything about it. Sadly, probably all of us, but if not all of us, at least many of us or most of us can think of a situation like that where there was unity in sin. Something sinful was going on and instead of people calling it out, uh, bringing it to a resolution, people kept quiet about it to preserve the unity that existed between brothers and sisters. But the problem was, it was not a unity that God's Spirit created, but it was a unity in sin. This is not the sort of unity that God's Spirit creates. And when we read in the Scripture that we are to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, it's not that kind of unity that we are mandated to maintain. In this world, there is also potential for people to unite together in the propagation of error, untruth. Not just sin, but untruth. A biblical example of this is the prophets mentioned in 1 Kings chapter 22. You can read it yourself on your own time. But basically, 400 prophets colluded together to tell lies to Ahab, the king of Israel, in the name of the Lord. Ahab wanted to know whether he should go to battle, whether the Lord would grant him success in battle. And 400 prophets got together and said, go up to battle against Ramoth-Gilead, for the Lord will give it into the hands of the king. 1 Kings 22 and verse 6. But God didn't send them. God's Spirit didn't bring about that unity of those 400 false prophets. Shortly thereafter, God's Spirit sent Micaiah, the real prophet, to tell the truth. I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. A more modern example of this phenomenon of unity around error is the signing of the document Evangelicals and Catholics together in 1994. This was a compromise of the gospel by men that should have known better. J.I. Packer, for example, has correctly said, Protestant and Catholic church systems stand opposed. If we go back historically, the Reformation was about the gospel. Protestants didn't leave the Roman Catholic Church about some secondary or tertiary difference, but about how someone goes to heaven. Right? But Packer signed the document anyway, which states, among other errors, that, and I quote, evangelicals and Catholics are brothers and sisters in Christ. This unity with a church that denies salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone, on the basis of His imputed righteousness, is a unity. Some evangelicals and some Catholics got together. But it's a unity not in truth, however, but in error. As with unity in sin, unity in error is not a unity that God's Spirit 
brings about. And so, neither is unity an error, an error that we as Christians are expected by God to maintain. We are not tasked with maintaining unity in sin, nor maintaining unity in error. We need to be ready to say to professing brothers and sisters in Christ, if you go down that road, I'm not coming with you. Here our paths will diverge and we will no longer walk together. We need to be ready to say that when continued unity would mean unity in the commission of sin or in the condoning or propagation of error. However, with that being said, there is a unity that God's Spirit does and has created. God's Spirit has brought us and each and every one of us as Christians as errant sinners together in Christ Jesus. As we observed earlier, God has made us one body by one Spirit. God has called each and every one of us errant sinners to one hope through one faith in one Lord, baptizing all of us alike into Christ Jesus according to our one God and Father's plan. Though we are not to be unified in sin, He has put us together in the church to be unified against sin. Though we are not to be unified in error, God's Spirit has put us together to be unified against error. If this is what God's plan and purpose for us is, for me as an errant sinner, to be unified together with you as errant sinners against sin and against error, then we ought to seek to cooperate with that plan and with that purpose. We ought to aim to maintain the unity that God's Spirit has created. And that's exactly what Paul instructs us to do here. Our unity is not to be pursued at all costs. We are not to remain unified when it would compromise our own obedience to God. We are not to be, remain unified when we would be participating in the propagation of or endorsement of error. However, to divide because of the simple presence of sin or error in a brother, or because of the simple presence of error or sin in a church, would be to work against what the Holy Spirit has called each and every Christian to do. God has called... Christians to unite together against the sin and error that plagues us all. Thus to divide from other Christians because of the simple presence of sin or error is in that sense anti-spiritual with a capital S. It's anti what the Holy Spirit is doing. It is to refuse to do what God's Spirit has called you to do. As an errant sinner, to be joined together with other errant sinners and love them in spite of, and eventually out of, their sin. 
a seminary professor of mine said, I will not cut myself off from one to whom Christ has bound himself. We could adapt that phrase and say, I will not cut myself off from one uh, to whom Christ has bound me. If Christ has bound me to other Christians, if he has brought me and a brother together into that one body, then we need to figure out how to maintain the sort of unity that he has aimed at in bringing us together. Not unity in sin, but unity against sin. Put us together so that we can help each other against sin and error. So let me pause here and just summarize before we move on. There are some types of unity that God's Spirit does not create. Unity in sin is not from the Holy Spirit. Unity in error is not from the Holy Spirit. We are not responsible for preserving or deepening those kinds of unity. In fact, it would be wrong to join someone in sin or error. We must not unite ourselves to others in sin or in error. But conversely, we must not allow ourselves to divide from other Christians simply due to the fact that they're wrong about something or that they sinned in some way. After all, if we did that, we'd have to even eventually divide from our own selves if that were possible. For we ourselves are often errant and sinful in many ways. What God's Spirit does is join errant sinners together in relationships that are expected to persist in spite of sin and error, in which persevering love is to be extended to one another in spite of sin and error, and in which we are to help one another out of sin and error. It is our duty to maintain the unity that God's Spirit has created by not giving up on relationships with other errant sinners saved by grace simply because they're wrong and sinful about many things. So how do we do it? How do we maintain the unity that God's Spirit has created? The way in which we are to maintain the unity that God's Spirit has created is to relate to other Christians in a humble, gentle, loving, and patient or forbearing manner. These are the things that Paul mentions in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 2. Let's look at each in turn, beginning with humility. Sam Waldron, a Reformed Baptist pastor in the U.S., has linked the concept of humility with Romans 12.3, though the word is not found there. Romans 12.3 says, I say to everyone among you, Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. According to Waldron, humility is that sober judgment. An honest assessment of oneself. Not thinking of oneself more highly than he ought. This fits well with the root meaning of the word humility, which Sinclair Ferguson says is lowly-mindedness. In fact, the King James Version has actually translated the Greek word, which our ESV Bibles have as humility. The King James Version has translated that Greek word as lowliness. Now to clarify, humility is not unduly low thoughts of ourselves, but appropriately low thoughts of ourselves. Humility is not a false 
demeaning of ourselves, Sinclair Ferguson says. Thus, humility is not, I'm wrong about everything. Humility is not even, I'm probably wrong about everything. Humility is not uncertainty. Humility is not a lack of conviction. There may be things that you have studied and know for sure. Truth can be known. But truth can't be known entirely by a finite being. And so humility certainly leads us to at least, I don't know everything. And humility should make us ready to receive teaching about things we don't yet know. Or about things that we haven't studied as carefully as a brother or sister in Christ has. We should be ready to think about it. To listen. To engage with uh, reasonable arguments and discussions. In which information is presented to us that we haven't previously thought about. Humility is just thinking in an appropriately low way of ourselves. Regarding our character, humility does not necessarily lead us to say, I'm more ungodly than everyone else. I am wrong every time someone else thinks I'm wrong. Humility does not lead us there. Humility is not the offering up of ourselves as a punching bag to anyone who cares to throw unfounded and unfair criticisms at us. Sometimes people just say things about us that are just wrong and not true. And it's not arrogant to say, nope, not true. There's nothing arrogant about that. However, humility would lead us to say things like, it's entirely possible that I'm blind to my own sin. So if a few people are saying this, let me think about it. Let me give some due care to this because it's entirely possible that I'm blind to my own sin. Humility would also lead us to say things like, such and such a person has made more progress in sanctification in this area than I have. And so humility would make us teachable in those sorts of ways. That we would not reject criticism a priori without even considering its potential merit. With respect to relationships in the church, humility helps us approach others without thinking or acting or assuming that we are always right and that we will always have the answers. We should remember that we've been wrong many times before and will likely be again. We should remember when dealing with those stuck in one sin pattern or another, that we ourselves have been and perhaps still are stuck in our own patterns of sin. Humility keeps us looking more realistically at the big picture than pride does. A pastor named Chris Bronze has said that pride is like two ants standing at the bottom of Mount Everest arguing about who is taller. Humility helps us remember with respect to our relationships with other people that even if we are a fraction of an inch taller than another ant, we're still only at the bottom of the mountain and we should view ourselves accordingly. Paul says to the Corinthians, who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? First of all, a humble attitude will remind us that we're not so very different than the people around us. And secondly, a humble attitude will remind us that even if we have made some progress in a certain area that a brother hasn't yet, it's still owing to the grace of God 
And so we have no reason to adopt a haughty attitude towards a brother. Let's consider now gentleness, which is the next thing that Paul mentions. Gentleness is hard to define because niceness doesn't quite cut it. The one who is our ultimate example, the Lord Jesus Christ, was gentle and lowly in heart, Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29. And he was full of the Holy Spirit. And we will remember that gentleness is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Yet Jesus often spoke in ways that were not what we would call nice. For example, he says to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 27, and 28, and you can read the whole chapter to read quite a bit more of not very nice things that Jesus says, but he says in in those particular verses, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So also, so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Well, Jesus is the, the gentle man par excellence, but that's not exactly what we would call nice. And that's where I say we can't equate those two ideas. That gentleness is niceness. And if someone isn't nice, they're not a very gentle person. We can't exactly do that. Likewise, Paul, the apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes in Galatians 5.12 on the matter of Judaizers pressing circumcision upon Christians. Quote, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. End quote. Not very nice. And elsewhere in Titus chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, Paul says, again, the very words of God in Scripture under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, quote, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. End quote. So whatever gentleness is, it does not exclude strong language and sharp rebukes. I believe that harshness is the best contrast with the biblical concept of gentleness. Almost everywhere that the word harsh appears in the ESV translation of the Bible, it's used in a negative context as an action with negative moral connotations. In the one place where it appears as an action of God, it seems to be a figure of speech warning of the severity of God's judgment. So nowhere in the scripture is literal literal harshness, properly speaking, commendable nor commanded. And the sense in which harshness is usually referred to in the Bible is something like this. Being disproportionately hard or severe disproportionately hard or severe is to be harsh. So if we were to define gentleness in contrast to harshness, it would be taking the softest and least severe approach possible. Gentleness would be taking the softest and the least severe approach possible. Thus, you see Jesus and Paul talking 
tenderly to sinners sometimes. So tenderly. Jesus looking over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. City that stones the prophets. How long, how, much, how often I have longed to gather you under my wings as a hen gathers its chicks. Or Paul, we were with you like a nursing mother among her children. We were ready not only to share the gospel, but also our very lives with you. You hear Jesus and Paul talking so tenderly to sinners sometimes. And then being so hard and so severe to other sinners at other times, like in the passages we just read. Both Jesus and Paul were quite capable of being hard and severe when necessary. But neither Jesus nor Paul were more severe nor more hard than necessary. They were gentle men who were not harsh men even when they were hard and severe. When they were hard and severe, it was not disproportionately hard and severe. It was warranted hardness and severeness, severity. These men were practiced in gentleness and adept at using the level of severity required in different situations. And I think this is what gentleness is. The disposition to take the softest and least severe approach possible. And the adeptness at doing that. Somebody who wants to do that and somebody who's good at doing that is a gentle person. Who's good at taking the softest and least severe approach possible. In other words, and perhaps simpler words, gentleness is using only as much force as is necessary. Learning not to kill a fly with a sledgehammer. There's a time to use sledgehammers, but sometimes just a little roll of newspaper will do. We should be gentle then as a way of maintaining the unity that the Spirit has created. As we deal with one another in the church, our relationship should be characterized by using the softest and the least severe approach possible. There's a time to be hard and a time to be severe. And when a brother or sister is, say, persistent in a particular sin or unrepentant about something very serious, hardness and severity are appropriate in the church at times. But we should be characterized by gentleness. That we, our general demeanor, is, our disposition is to take the softest and the least severe approach possible as we deal with one another about various issues that come up in the church. We shouldn't needlessly alienate others or alienate ourselves from others by being harsh, constantly using more force than is necessary. People should know that they can come and have a reasonable conversation with us and that we're characterized by dealing as softly as possible with people. So we should cultivate humility and gentleness. And if we cultivate humility, then gentleness should naturally follow. If we do not think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but remember that we are ourselves sinners saved by grace, then we will be much more able to deal gently with other sinners saved by grace. If we remember that we have been forgiven a huge debt, then we will be able, much more able to deal softly with others who owe us much smaller debts. There's a saying, those who live in glass houses should not throw stones. 
we would do well to remember the golden rule that we should treat other people the way that we would wish to be treated. If we do not want other people to approach us with more force than necessary, but to be able to come and speak kindly and softly to us if they have a complaint or a correction to bring, then we also ought not to use more force than is necessary with others. As humble sinners who are ourselves uh, have many errors and many sins, we should, also, we should naturally deal gently with others who have many errors and many sins. <clears throat> the last thing that Paul says in verse 2 is with patience, bearing with one another in love. Patience is similar enough to forbearance that we're going to deal with the two of them together this morning. And so the sense of that whole phrase is, as Charles Hodge has said, let love induce you to be forbearing towards each other. Let love induce you to be patient or forbearing towards each other. That's the sense of this phrase here. Let's look at love and then patience or forbearance in turn then. Firstly, love. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Implicit in this verse is the idea that the cross is such a good example of love that it can even serve as a definition of sorts. John is essentially saying, do you want to see love? Then look at the cross where the Father sent the Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And propitiation means the one who bore the wrath for us, to divert the wrath of God away from us toward Himself. That's what propitiation means. Do you want to see love? Look at the cross where the Father sent the Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The cross ought to be our ultimate model then as we aspire to let love induce us to forbearance. How can cross-like love induce us to forbearance? Well, what happened at the cross? The cross is where Jesus died as a substitute for guilty sinners so that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. This is the good news of the Gospel. At a simple level, at the cross, Jesus sought the good of others, our good, at great cost to Himself. This is love. His love for us. Now as pertains to our love for others, as in let love induce us to forbearance, we are not the propitiation for anyone's sins. We don't bear the wrath of God in ourselves for the sake of others. So we can't imitate Jesus' cross-like love in that way. But just as Jesus sought the good of others at great cost to Himself, so we can seek the good of others at great cost to ourselves. And if that is our aim, then patience or forbearance is a natural consequence of that aim. So let's talk about that. Patience or forbearance. The opposite would be you will immediately get what you deserve. The opposite of patience or forbearance would be relationships predicated on the other person's performance. Listen, I got one foot out the door. If you mess it up, I'm gone. That would be the opposite of patience or forbearance. <clears throat> Christian patience, on the other hand, 
as Sinclair Ferguson observes, involves being able to take a long-term view of a fellow Christian as a work in process, remembering that our Lord has been and is so patient with us. If we have pre-committed to seek someone else's good at great cost to ourselves, out of cross-like love, then patience or forbearance is taking that long-term view of the process of seeking another person's good and being ready to persevere through difficulties and conflicts with that person whose good we are seeking. We're going to persevere through difficulties and conflicts with the overarching goal of extending costly benevolence toward that person. Your sin isn't going to make me stop loving you. I'm going to persevere through your sin. I'm going to persevere through your errors. This is patience or forbearance in the context of relationships. Let cross-like love, that commitment to do good to another at great cost to ourselves, let that induce you to forbearance. That's the sense of what Paul is saying here at the end of Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 2. And again, humility is so helpful to us here. If we are humble men and women, if we have a proper view of ourselves, not an overly high view of ourselves, but an appropriately low view of ourselves, then we will naturally be patient and forbearing men and women. Because we will, we will know clearly in our minds and in our hearts that God has borne patiently with us. And brothers and sisters, even as Christians, God is still bearing patiently with us. Every day. As an elderly man, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, said, Although my memory is fading, I remember two things clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. If we, like Newton, remember those two things clearly at all times, Not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought. But with sober judgment, it will be much easier to bear patiently with others who are also great sinners in the hands of a great Savior. We will remember we are not so very different from the people around us. So let that cross-like love, humility, motivate us to be gentle to be patient and to be forbearing with others around us in the church. So in summary, Paul's overarching idea in Ephesians 4, 1-6 is that Christians should endeavor to maintain the unity that God's Spirit has created. Paul gives us the reason why we should seek to maintain the unity that God's Spirit has created, namely that God's Spirit has created an objective unity, and so it would be anti-spiritual with a capital S, working against the Holy Spirit to undermine that objective unity. And as Charles Hodge has said, all sins of unity are therefore sins against the Holy Spirit. They pull apart what God has joined together. We should recognize and acknowledge and cooperate with the objective unity that God's Spirit has established and continues to establish. We should not work against it. Because there is one body, one spirit, 
one hope, one call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one Father. We should not act like there are more than one of each. And Paul tells us not only the reason why we should seek to maintain the unity that God's Spirit has created, but also how to seek to maintain the unity that God's Spirit has created by being humble, gentle, loving, and patient or forbearing. Imagine if all Christians put these things into practice. Never mind all Christians. Imagine if we put these things into practice. Imagine if we all at CRBC seek to cultivate humility, gentleness, love, and patience or forbearance with and toward one another and with and toward the wider church here in Barbados. What a wonderful church we would become. What a blessed unity we would enjoy within these four walls. And what a truly unifying force we would be among the wider church as we would be uniting with other genuine brothers and sisters, not in sin and error, but against sin and error. Imagine the potential of those kinds of relationships with Christians and other churches across the island in years and decades ahead if we all related to one another like this. No doubt we'll have our problems over the years and difficulty putting these things into practice. But by God's grace, let's at least aim for the bullseye. May God grant us the grace as a church in terms of our relationships with one another and with the wider church in Barbados to walk in a manner worthy of the calling we have received, seeking to maintain the unity that God's Spirit creates.